Good morning. Well, welcome to all of you here and, as Caleb mentioned, at home, watching on Facebook. I'm going to do a very, very brief recap of our last couple of weeks. We spent two weeks now talking about uh, the heart of the gospel and the degree to which that is not just uh, the message of salvation, which we have all grown up with and a lot of us hold near and dear to our hearts, uh, but a much broader message of Jesus being king, that Jesus is Lord. And I threw up last week this diagram, um, which is a diagram we'll be returning to over the next couple of weeks, uh, which has a number of items circling and sort of surrounding this concept that Jesus is Lord. And today we're going to talk about the top one, that, that disciple-making is something that is foundational to the church. Um, we're going to start today with our scripture, and this comes today from Matthew. It's chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. And this is the moment when Matthew tells us that Jesus calls several of his disciples. It says, as he, being Jesus, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. We will return to that in just a little bit. When we talk about the church and what the church is supposed to do, we talked, as we said, last couple of weeks about the fundamental belief and the core belief that Jesus is our Lord, that Jesus is the King of the world, that he's the one that has been sent into the world to save it, to make it right, but also to become king and then to rule the world from the right hand of God. When we talk about what we're supposed to do now in light of that, I mentioned last week and in the week before that Jesus is king and that means we do what Jesus says. So the question then becomes, well, what does Jesus say to do? And the most fundamental piece of what a church is to do is to make disciples. It is the Great Commission. It's the thing that Jesus charges us to do. And all of the other things that we think about when we think about what is church and what do we do as a church is ultimately in the service of and part of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. All great movements, and we talked about a couple of them last week, whether it's the early church movement, the Chinese church, the Methodist movement, um, if you can think of others throughout the history that you're aware of or stories of the church, all of them at their heart and their core are disciple-making movements. What causes that explosive growth is one disciple goes out and talks to another person and they choose to be a disciple and they come into this disciple process and the next one and the next one and the next one and it becomes this exponential growth. And when it's done well and with God's prompting and, and with his spirit, they become massive movements and have become massive movements throughout time. It's also important to understand that while that is their core, they never actually become more than that. And as we go back and we look at these movements, when they get off track, when they become settled, when they build institutions around them, when they try to add to the mission of disciple-making, when they make it about more, they lose their momentum, they slow down, and in many cases, they begin to die and decline. It turns out that disciple-making is both sort of the first step, but also the abiding strategic practice of the church. It is the thing that we do. It is the first step of becoming a Christian. It is also the goal of becoming a Christian. So that you step into the process of discipleship, it is never something that you cease to do. 
you never have arrived. Does that make sense? We are always becoming a more and better and truer disciple. A number of more recent movements of the church have recognized this. And while we, I say we not necessarily Emmanuel, but the larger church, we have created these systems to go around the disciple disciple making process. We've added to it liturgies and systematic theologies, which we talked about last week. These movements simply just don't have time for as they're underground movements that seem to explode. They just can't carry with them all of the weight of that. As we've added to those things, things have slowed down, of course. I mean, the church in America is in decline. If you, and you listen to any expert in, in, in the church growth world, every mainline denomination is in decline. There's some debate as to whether or not there is an underground movement going on that is replacing that. To the extent that it is, it's because they've realized that oftentimes what we've done is we've made church too complex. We've added so much to it that if someone walks in off the street and they sit down, they have no idea what's going on in large measure. They have trouble connecting or understanding what's happening. And so we've made it hard to sort of come in and be part of the church process. And at the same time, we've made being a disciple way too easy. We don't put those demands on each other as Jesus does. And we say, come be part of the church. And then sometimes we explain the liturgy and the things that are going on through a service. But we say, if you come and you sit and you tithe and you sing and you show up, well, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian and to be a church member. And then you can go home and everybody can be happy. When in reality, what Jesus is asking us to do is much more complex, much more difficult, and demands much more of us than just showing up, writing a check, singing songs, and going on our, our merry way. There is a group out in California um, called Church Multiplication Associates. And they have said, uh, in, I'm going to read this, they have said, as they started out, they said, we want to lower the bar of how church is done, which immediately I'm sure some of us sort of are on the edge about that, right? We want to lower the bar of how we do church, but we want to raise the bar of what it means to become a disciple. And so they sent out with that mission. And in just a few short years, they grew from one or just a small group to 500, which sounds really impressive. And if all of us, if we could in a few years be 500 people, we'd be really happy. What's more impressive is you realize it's not 500 people he's talking about. It's 500 churches that they spun off and planted 500 churches across the world in a matter of three, four, five years. And if you think about that, if it's, let's just say it's five years. Let's go out to the long end of that. We're talking 250 weeks, 500 churches. That means every week, two churches. Every week, two churches. They're spawning. They're creating disciples. They're creating church leaders to go out and plant another church. And so 500 communities, two every week, are being spawned out of that organization, which is remarkable. So when we look around and we think one of our immediate needs and one of the things that we need to figure out is how to grow, movements like that are something we ought to be looking at and understanding how they're working. And I've already told you their primary sort of organizing principle was to make it very easy to do church, very easy to gather, to sing together, to connect, but very hard. And there are lar- there are, there's a high bar, a high demand on what it means to actually be a disciple of Christ. Now, as we're thinking about church growth, it's, it's easy to go to all of the different sort of marketing strategies that we have seen employed by businesses in our, in our world, uh, that we've seen employed and used successfully by churches. 
Um, it would be very easy for us to buy some billboards or run some Facebook ads or TV spots or radio, and we can debate about how well those different things actually work. But we can create a buzz just through marketing, and people will start to walk through the door. Some of you know that I do this part-time. I'm here half-time. My other life, my day job, is doing just that. I run a marketing company, and we do that. So we could very much do that. We could deploy a bunch of fancy equipment, create some slick videos, and uh, do some amazing worship, uh, up the production quality. Uh, we could spend time, money, and resources doing that, and people would walk in the door. But what's the problem with that, if you're thinking back to last week? Sorry? One, can you sustain it? Last week we talked about Jesus' Lord. Jesus' as Lord is a story, it's a narrative, right? The gospel is a narrative that stands in critique of a whole list of other narratives. And we, we, num- we named a number of them. I think there were seven or eight of them we talked about last week. Remember what one of them was? The first three were like nationalism, individualism, and then the third was consumerism. And the problem with so much of church growth strategies is they are modern marketing business strategies. They come out of a consumer mindset and a consumer model. What they're, tr- what, they're, what they're there to do is to create a need and a desire to show up to something or buy something, to consume either a product, a service, an experience. And when we rely on those, we buy into that narrative and we become a purveyor of religious goods and services so that we are just providing hopefully, good teaching, good music, a nice experience for people to come in and experience, right? But if if that's what we're doing, then all we've done is bought into that consumerist mindset and model, and we're not creating disciples. We're creating consumers of religious goods and services. And that's not what we're here to do. And so we will probably use some of those strategies, but they cannot be the fundamental guiding principle or strategy by which we hope to grow a church. Otherwise, like I said, we've bought into one of these other narratives that we're supposed to stand in critique of. Matthew chapter 28. I've referenced this already, but let's just read it. It's part of the Great Commission. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That is Jesus' final instruction to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. When he's getting ready to leave, he leaves them without instruction. Go, make disciples. What is this church supposed to do? Go, make disciples. When I was, it's been a decade ago, when I was at a, I was at a week-long pastor training uh, with the Methodist Church, which I was connected to prior to this, there was a session when I was told that sort of the matriarch of the West Ohio Conference, which is what, what we sat in, uh, would be coming to talk to us. And there had been buzz for a couple of days about this woman who was going to come and speak to us. And she showed up, and I remember looking at her and, and being, I, I, having anticipation, but not overly impressed. Because she didn't carry herself with any sort of, uh, you know, great power or strength. She was, she was probably, at this point, she was probably in, in her 70s at least, uh, which really means nothing. I mean, she's wise, right? But she, you know, when she spoke leading up to the session, she, she, she wasn't speaking with any sort of overconfidence or sort of arrogance or any, any way. She was just very humble and meek. And then she got up to speak to us. And 
I immediately realized why people had such respect for this woman. Because she stood up, she set down her Bible and her notes, and she looked at all of us dead in the eye, and she said, if you claim to be a church, and you are not making disciples, and you are not baptizing disciples, you are not a church. And it hit all of us right here, right? Square in in the eye. What it means to be the church is to be on the mission that Jesus our Lord has given us, which is to make disciples and baptize disciples. And everything else fits into that mission, in support of that mission. What we're here to do is to bring about the kingdom. And the way that Jesus has told us to do that is to go make disciples and baptize people. It's what we ought to be doing. So as we look at ourselves and how we are doing church and being church and growing or not growing, we have to ask ourselves, are we actually making disciples? Are we all personally, individually in a process that we started when we accepted Jesus of becoming like Jesus? And if we're just showing up to hear some good music and hopefully some decent teaching, and then we're going on about our life, well, then we're not really putting Jesus as Lord in the center of our life and seeking to become a disciple of his. If we do our job right, what will ultimately happen is we will spawn other churches. I know that might be an idea that is, you know, sounds way off or not possible, but if we do this right, that's something that we ought to be doing. We ought to be raising up other teachers. Not everyone has that gift, but certainly there will, become, there will come those who God has gifted in that way. And if we become an incubator for disciples, there will be others who teach. There will be other pastors. There will be other evangelists, other prophets, others with those gifts. And we ought to be raising them up and getting to the point where we spin them out to go do the thing that God has called them to do. We have in our history, two churches that have come from us. One sits right over here and the other one's down the street, the two Lutheran churches. Now, the truth is that probably from what I can read and hear didn't happen in the healthiest way. Usually churches spawn churches because everybody gets mad at each other, right? That's what happens. There are lots of churches in town that have been started because a group got mad and they left and they started a new church. But if we do church right, we ought to be spawning churches in a healthy way. We ought to be raising up leaders that we all can respect. We get to three, four, 500 people. We say, okay, here's 50 or 60 of them with a leader, go. Go be a new church, go somewhere that needs a new church, a new healthy church, and go do it with our blessing. This quote here from Alan Hirsch, and I I should mention a lot of what we're talking about is coming from a text that he wrote 10, 12 years ago called Forgotten Ways. He's an Australian theologian and a missiologist, which is a fancy word. He he studies the mission of the church. Um, And he said this, only to the extent that we can develop self-initiating, reproducing, fully devoted disciples can we hope to get the task of Jesus' mission done which is a wordy way of saying we got to do the thing that Jesus said to do to hope to do the things he said we need to be doing. If you're going to bring the kingdom, you're going to spread the church, you've got to make disciples. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks. And if you read the other sort of ovals that are around that star, you saw that another one and the one we're going to go to next week is is sort of a, a missional incarnational mindset. We'll define that next week. But it it's important that we understand that as a church, we have a mission. And as I've said, it's, it is in some sense just making disciples, but we, ha- we make disciples by being on mission. Does that make sense? So we're not going to make disciples by all of you just sitting here listening to me, right? 
I don't care how good I am at communicating or teaching you. I'm not Jesus, right? I can't do that. And in fact, you look at the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. Jesus didn't do that that way either. We as Enlightenment Western people often think that we can think our way into right action. That if we just have the right way of thinking, or if I just explain something well enough to you, that you're going to go out of here and you're going to do something about it. When in reality, that usually doesn't work. The Hebraic understanding, the first century Jewish understanding of becoming a disciple was that you act your way into right thinking. So that you go out and you do the things that God had said to do. And you find yourself transforming your mind as you do that. Now, we hope that teaching and talking and discussing and debating supplements that. But if we think we're just going to sit around and talk our way into being a good, healthy church, we're not. Maybe in 20 years of enough blabbing from up here, it will finally sink into our brains and we go do something. But we'll become a real church a lot quicker if we just decide we're going to go do something. We're going to feed people once a month, right? We're going to do, go on prayer walks. We're going to clean up the neighborhood. We're going to do a host of other things that we could be doing. Going to do that together, being on mission together, is how we become disciples and a disciple-making church. So the question then becomes, what, what is a disciple? If we don't understand what that is, we have a hard time becoming that thing, right? So like so much of the other things that we've talked about, discipleship has a history. When Jesus shows up, he calls disciples because that's already a thing. So let's talk about what the discipleship was in his day. So discipleship um, was the ultimate goal of the educational system, the religious training system in Judaism. And you you have to understand that we certainly live in a, a culture that separates so much, right? So church and state, we now can't pray in school. Like you don't, you know, kids actually now get in trouble for taking Bibles to school, which is another debate to be had, right? Um, But our educational system and our religious systems are, for the most part, separate and divorced from one another. But in this world, religion infused everything you did. And so the educational system was first and foremost a religious training. And the first stage for Jewish, both boys and girls, in the first century, Israel and Judaism, and particularly the area of Galilee, where Jesus uh, was teaching originally, we sort of showed up on the scene uh, and grew up, was educating both boys and girls. And from the ages about five, sometimes a little younger, but five to 10, give or take, they would enter this stage called Beit Sefer, and it literally means house of the book. And so for those five years, give or take, those boys and girls would go to school every day with a local teacher, perhaps a rabbi, and they would work on memorizing the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. By the time these kids are 10 years old, they can stand up and recite from memory the first five books of the Bible at 10 years old. All right, so that was the goal. Boys and girls. At that point, most females, girls, would go home. The boys who were good and showed promise would continue, everybody else would be sent home and they would begin to learn the family trade. So they would do the thing that their dad did. They would apprentice for 10 or 15 years. And then at around the age 20, they would take over the family business. Dad would go into retirement, but that was sort of the life. But if you were really good, you would enter the second phase, which is known as Beit Midrash, right? Which means house of learning. And for the next five years, give or take, 
you would learn on you would learn to memorize the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. All of that by the age of 15 or 16, you would be able to recite from memory. I don't have it memorized. I probably don't either, right? But remember in the prior weeks, we talked about the extent to which a hearer, a first century Jewish hearer of scripture, when they hear Jesus talk, or they hear when the disciples talk, or they hear, read Peter or Paul writing and referencing these Old Testament scriptures, guys, they've got it all memorized, right? They know exactly what these guys are talking about. There's no question in their mind when they quote an Old Testament scripture, what that context is, what was intended by that, and how now the early church is now re-understanding and in some cases reinterpreting those scriptures in light of who Jesus was. The other thing that this stage would do was they would begin to um, apply and learn how to actually apply and begin to interpret for themselves the Torah itself. Right? So that was a process. And that was um, that was a fluid thing. There were many rabbis around and they all seemed to have their own little spin and take on Torah and the Old Testament. Um, and so if you, if you graduated from here, if you made it through, you know, a lot of kids would you know, simply just wash out. They just couldn't do it and they'd go home and they'd get into the family business. But if you were the best of the best and you graduated this stage and you wanted to go on, you would go and you would find one of those rabbis. You would try to be, uh, you would try to certainly to find one of the more famous ones that you agreed with in terms of his interpretation. And you would apply to him to become what's known as a Talmudim. And as you would go and you'd sit before this rabbi and you would make a request to become his Talmudim, he would sit there and he would grill you. So you would be defending your interpretation, your understanding of, of the scriptures, of the Torah, of the Old Testament. And he would be asking you, and in the back of his mind the whole time, he's asking, does this kid have what it takes? Can I teach him the thing that I know? Can I teach him my way of living, my way of speaking, my way of being in the world? And that whole question goes to, can he take up my yoke? A rabbi's yoke was his teaching, his lifestyle, his way of being in the world that he hoped to pass on to his Talmudim. So in the back of his mind, the rabbi is asking, does this kid have what it takes to take on my yoke? And already some of you who know the stories of Jesus recognize that phrase and you know where we're going with this. Talmudim translates to disciple. To be a disciple means to be at this stage of the process, to have passed through Beit Sefer, Beit Midrash, to pass through the application process, the grilling of a, of a rabbi, and then to become a disciple. And so we think of disciple as student, but it is much more than student, right? If you become a disciple of a rabbi, you give up everything. You leave your family behind, you leave your family business behind, you leave whatever life you were going to have that you should have had according to typical Jewish custom to go follow this rabbi. It was a great honor to be a disciple, as you can imagine. And so people literally dropped what they were doing when they got accepted. Out the door they went, bye mom, bye dad, see you in 20 years, I'm going to follow my rabbi. I'm going to take his yoke upon me. There was a uh, phrase that came about, and it was, a, it was a blessing that you would give to a disciple. 
And it came from the fact that you would literally follow your disciple every, or your rabbi everywhere you went. So as he's walking on the road, you would literally step by step be behind him. And if you have been taught about the act of washing feet before, one of the reasons that was such a lowly job is because everything that your rabbi stepped in, you stepped in. Everything that uh, they kicked up as they walked through the desert, kicked up and covered you so that you would literally, at the end of the day, be covered in whatever your rabbi had walked through that day. And this phrase kicked up or came about as a blessing. It says, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, which was a blessing, as we've said, to a disciple that they might be caked, soaked in the teaching, the life, the path that they've chosen of their rabbi. So we go to our scripture today, which was from Matthew chapter four, and it's when Jesus calls his disciples. He's walking down the Sea of Galilee along the beach, and he sees who? Yeah, so the first, the first two he sees are Simon, who will become Peter, right? Simon has two names. Uh, most people had two names. They had a Jewish name, and they also had a Greek name. And what are they doing? Fishing, which means what? They're working, which means what? How'd they do in school? They washed out. They weren't good enough. They didn't cut it. And then he goes on a little further and he sees two other guys. Who are they? I hear it. James, yeah, he's with Zebedee, their father, James and John, right? So they're with their father, right? So Andrew and, and Simon, Peter, uh, as far as we can tell from what Matthew tells us, they're out fishing by themselves. So they likely have inherited their father's business. So they're probably 19, 20, 21, in their 20s somewhere. But James and John, son of, Zeb- son of Zebedee, are with Zebedee doing what? Mending nets, right? So they're not actually fishing. They're doing sort of the grunt work, which means what? Speak up. They failed too. They washed out. Say again, Cleo. They're younger. They're probably even younger, right? So they're still in the apprenticeship phase. So these guys are maybe 15 years old, 16 years old, but they've washed out. They don't cut it either. What does Jesus say to them? What are his words? Come, follow me. Which is what the rabbi says to the applicant in front of him when he has discerned and decided that this guy has, it was always guys, of course, at this stage, this guy has what it takes to be like me. At the end of the analysis and the questions and however long that takes, the rabbi looks at the, boy, the young boy still before him and he says, come, follow me. Which says to them, you have what it takes to do what I do. I think you have what it takes to learn what I have to teach you. You have what it takes to become like me. And so for these four guys, two of them are teenagers at best have washed out, been told at some point during the the phase of education, great, you've got, you know, you you did well memorizing scripture, but you don't have what it takes. Go home and learn the business, right? And it could have been at the stage of the application of the rabbi. There were people, there were, you know, not everybody made it. Just because you got to apply doesn't mean you got accepted. And if the rabbi doesn't say, come follow me, he says, go home, learn your family business. And so these four guys are doing just that. They were not good enough. But here comes Jesus walking down the beach 
He looks at them and he says, come, follow me. If you're one of those guys, what do you do? What would you do if a rabbi comes to you and says, come, follow me? Let me think about it. What did they do? It says, it tells us exactly what a Talmudim would do. They drop everything and they go. Because this is one of the highest honors in this culture that you could receive is for a rabbi to say, come follow me. James and John are with their dad. They literally drop the nets, jump out of the boat and take off. See you, dad, (laughs) right? And it's, it's perfectly acceptable. But it's crucial to understand who does Jesus say, to whom does Jesus say, come and follow me? Exactly, the not good enoughs. Jesus has the JV team, the B team, right? Jesus calls the not good enoughs, the ones that didn't measure up, that couldn't cut it in school, that certainly couldn't cut it in front of a rabbi being asked about the interpretation of Torah. They're just not good enough. They don't know enough. I don't know if they've got it up here or not, but for whatever reason, they're at home fishing and learning to fish. They're apprenticing with their father or out in the boats doing the thing that they'll be doing for the rest of their life because they weren't good enough to be a disciple. And here comes what will be the super rabbi walking down the beach and says, come follow me, be my disciple. And so they take off. If we think about another story for a moment, the story when Jesus has stopped for the day teaching and healing and he turns to his disciples and he says, get in the boat, go on out. I'll, uh, I'll join you later, right? He's tired and we're told that he goes off to somewhere to pray and sort of decompress, which is an important part of life, right? We see Jesus do that over and over. To, he takes time away. He goes to the garden or withdraws from people to rejuvenate and pray. And we're told that the wind on the Sea of Galilee has kicked up and sweeps the boat out from the shore to the point where when Jesus presumably comes to find them later that evening, they're too far away. And then the scene jumps to early that next morning, the disciples are all in the boat and Jesus shows up doing what? Yeah, he just comes like strolling out on the lake. But Peter does what? What What does he do? He gets out of the boat. <laughs> he says, Jesus, if it's you, call me and let me come to you. Why would Peter do that? What? Faith. What is a disciple trying to do? Yeah, he's to pick up the dust of the rabbi. To be a disciple is to be like your rabbi. So he sees Jesus walking out. So it makes perfect sense. Well, I'm going to try that because that's what I want to be, right? This is, I'm here to become him. So Jesus, or Peter steps out of the boat, right? To be like his rabbi. And he starts strolling on the water and he's doing just fine until all of a sudden he's not doing just fine, right? And what happens to him? Yeah, starts to sink. And he cries out to Jesus and he says, Lord, Lord, save me. And what does Jesus say to him? You have to be louder. I hear, I hear answers. You remember what Jesus says to him? Yes, O ye of little faith. What is, that, what is that statement about? I think most of us, I know for myself, I always assume that means Peter doubts and has no faith in Jesus, right? 
Like you don't, you don't believe Jesus enough to be able to w- walk. But Jesus is doing just fine. Peter can see that Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus has walked quite a ways out into the sea on the water and he's not sinking. What faith has Peter lost? He's lost faith in himself, himself, right? He's completely lost faith in his ability to be like his rabbi. Now there's a danger there of making this about Peter's ability, of course. And so there's a fine line to walk here as we talk through this. But what Peter has lost is his faith that God, that Jesus, can make him like himself. Peter Peter doesn't believe that he's got what it takes to be and do the things like his disciple does or his rabbi does. When in fact, Jesus knows that he does. He's called him. He said, come follow me. And in this moment, presumably Jesus says, all right, get out of the boat and come on, right? So he said to Peter, do it. But as he gets out and the wind kicks up, Peter gets scared. And he begins to doubt that he has what it takes or he can do the thing that he sees his rabbi doing. Part of what Luke tells us through his stories in Acts is that after the resurrection, after Pentecost, after the disciples have been filled with the spirit, they do the same things that Jesus does. If you go through and you read the teachings that they give, they map directly onto the things that Jesus said. If you read the things they do, they heal, they make lame people walk. They do the exact same things that Jesus has done because they are his disciples. They have become like him. And on the other side of death, resurrection, and the coming of the spirit and the sending forth the great commission, they are empowered to do those things. They become their rabbi. They become the rabbis themselves, the apostles, we call them. For those of you who are here, take a minute and look around. Literally, I want you to turn around. I know it's hard in pews, but turn around, look around. This is our church. How many of you have the Old Testament memorized? And so I say this not in any way derogatory. I put myself in this with you. Guys, we're the B team. We're the JV, right? But we have been called. Like this, this, this calling of his disciples applies to us as well. Jesus has looked at us and said, come and follow me. What it is to be a church is to be a disciple. What it is to be a Christian is to enter into this process of becoming like our rabbi. And later in Matthew, Jesus will tell us that we don't call anybody teacher, don't call anybody rabbi, don't call anybody father. You have one father, you have one teacher, and it is Jesus and God in heaven. That's who we're following. That's who we are trying to be like. And that is who believes in us enough to call us into this place, into this process, because he truly knows that with his help, we have everything we need to become like him. Is that Jesus that calls Peter and Andrew and calls John and James and eight more to be his disciples? Is that Jesus that has faith in you enough, like he did Peter, to say, come and follow me, come do the things that I do. Is that Jesus your Lord? 
I believe that you think he's your savior, that you hold on to that. My question to you today, is he your Lord? And are you willing to enter into the process of becoming a disciple? That's what we're here to do as a church. It's why we've been called together. And that is how we will bring the kingdom, grow the church, do all the things that we want to do. But if we miss this step, and if we do not recognize that that's our call, even if we gather people, it won't amount to anything. Jesus says this, says, come to me, all you that are weary and carry a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That is Jesus's call to be a disciple. The king of the world, dead, resurrected, ascended to heaven, looks at you and says, come, follow me. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand before you today in awe of who you are, um, perhaps a little daunted by the task that is before us, We look at your son, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. We look at the things that he did, the things that he said, the people that he helped, that he drew near. And we look at our world, broken, hurting, evidencing the fall and a separation from you in ways that seem insurmountable. But we know, God, that you are a God of restoration, a God of redemption, a God of miracles, a God who sends his spirit, and a God who is asking us to be your disciples, to be engaged in a process of becoming like you so that we may help heal the world. And so this morning, God, we ask a couple things. One, that we hear that call, that we understand that despite the fact that we don't have what it takes on our own, you have called us in that state and that you offer us your spirit and that you have full knowledge and belief that we, in receiving your spirit, have all that it takes. And so God, we ask that you would continue to teach us mold us, help us look at the world and see where you would have us go and work and be your hands and feet. That engaging in that mission of redeeming and restoring the world, that we would become like your son. We hear your words today to come and follow you. And we ask that you give us the courage, the strength to drop our nets to say goodbye to whatever it is that we need to leave behind to put down so that we might be your disciples. We ask that in your son's name and in the power of your spirit. Amen.
when I was in high school, one of my, my favorite sport was basketball. And as a sophomore, I was on the JV team. And I remember about halfway through the season, I got tapped. It was time to go suit up and play with the varsity team. And I remember, I, I will never forget that day, that night, being put into that game, being terrified. <laughs> right? I, my performance was not great. I made lots of mistakes. But it was a profound moment in my basketball career when the coach looked at me and said, you're no longer JV. Here's your gear. It's time to get in the game for real. And if you've never heard it put that way or you've never heard the message you heard today, hear that that's what's going on here today. Today is the day that God looks at us and says, you are no longer JV, you're no longer B team, you're no longer the not good enoughs. You have what it takes and I'm coming, I'm calling you to come follow me, to be what I am, to do what I do, to say what I say, to be my hands and feet in this world. Please hear that invitation with all the anxiety and perhaps a little bit of fear or dread that that may bring up because it requires much of all of us. But today very well may be the day that this church becomes the thing that it ought to become, that we start down that path or we start on a little bit of a new trajectory to change the world. Those not good enoughs that Jesus called changed the world. And we can too. From this very spot in the south corner of Zanesville, Ohio, we are called to change the world. So go forth from this place today in his love and his mercy, and may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Amen.